Amen. We can go ahead and grab a seat. And as you do, uh, hopefully you brought a Bible. You can take that out. Love for you to make your way to 1 Thessalonians. We are continuing in a series that we have been in now for several weeks that we are calling Living Hope. And we are walking through this letter written by Paul to the church in Thessalonica and working our way through it. And we are coming toward the end of the first letter uh, that was written. Um, And then we're going to move quickly through the uh, second letter as well. But uh, as you are making your way to 1 Thessalonians, I'm going to meet you in uh, chapter 5, beginning in verse 12 this morning. But I wonder, um, actually I don't have to wonder, I'm pretty sure that you probably feel the same way about going to the doctor as I do. Um, I try and do that as little as possible, um, right? And only when uh, absolutely needed. But I hear that there's these things that doctors do Uh, that are called routine checkups. Um, have you heard about these things? Do you know about these things? Um, it's, it's, it's kind of just a, a check-in that you're supposed to do uh, every so often, right? And the idea with them is that you prevent illness, right? I think we, have, uh, we know now conclusively that it's far easier to prevent an illness than it is to treat something that has already um, happened, And uh, when we're young, right, checkups happen far more frequently. Uh, Those of you, if you've had a newborn recently, you know this, that every few weeks and then every few months and then moving toward uh, every year, um, that there are uh, checkups for uh, newborns and then children. Uh, For adults, though, they say that if you are in good health and under the age of 50, the recommendation is that every three years that you're going into some sort of checkup, so it sort of, uh, you know, loosens up for a little bit. But then once you turn 50, it's recommended that you again resume every single year. And again, the whole purpose of this is that you would catch some sort of illness before it comes so that you can treat it more effectively than after um, it uh, takes place. You know, I would say this, that there is some correlation to the physical health of our bodies, the way that we uh, go through these checkups, check-ins, and, uh, you know, look at that as we would look at with the health of the church. I would say this, that for a church body, as a church family, that regular checkups are needed. And uh, in the same way, in the youth of a church, uh, that they're more frequently needed at first. And so uh, I always like to remind us, because sometimes we forget that our church is relatively young, um, not that not meaning that we have young people, though we certainly do have um, many of those, uh, but the, the age of our church is quite young. We are only three and a half years old as a church. And so we want to have regular and frequent sort of checkups of, okay, how are we doing? What's, what's the health of our church? That's what we're talking about this morning in the passage, is we're talking about what does it look like to be a healthy church because we want to have health, right? We want to catch some of these things before they become problems. We want to uh, treat um, and prevent, rather, illnesses rather than treat them. And so what we want to do is we want to be regular with our checkups. We never want to move away from or spend too long between them. And so you didn't know that you were coming to it this morning, but this morning what we want to do together as a church is we just want to do a little bit of a checkup and see how we are doing as a church body. And that's what... Paul is doing here for the church. As he is coming to the end of this letter, uh, he begins to uh, sort of move towards just some practical things, some, some kind of checkup type things. Just say, hey, listen, make sure that this is in place. Make sure that these things are happening. This is necessary for you to be a 
healthy church. And this is what we see. Let me just read the passage and then we're gonna walk our way through it. You can follow along in your copy of scripture as I read. I'm in 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 12. It says this. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Listen, church, this is the big idea of this passage this morning that we are going to unpack in our time together. It's this. We want to be a healthy church, and we've been talking all about this living hope that's found in Christ. Well, a healthy church is where our living hope in Christ thrives. I believe this, that scripture makes this abundantly clear throughout its pages, is that the the local church body, The family of believers gathered together, assembled together as a church is the place where our living hope in Christ is established, it grows, it's built up, and it thrives. And apart from it, that it is very, very difficult to walk in this living hope that Christ has given to us through his work on the cross. And so if a healthy church is a place where the living hope of Christ thrives, if that's this gift that he's given us, then I think a natural question should be, then what makes a a healthy church? What is it that makes us a healthy church? And so we're gonna see both this week and next, I'll tell you next week is gonna be the continuation of this morning. We wanna look at some marks of a healthy church. So this morning, we're looking at three of them. We're gonna see three marks of a healthy church and the rest of them we'll catch next week. And these are all things, we are a healthy church when... Okay, we are a healthy church when these things are in place. Let me give you the first one and I'll show it to you in uh, in the verses here. It's this, we are a healthy church when we value leaders rightly. When we value leaders rightly. Right there from God's word, look back at verse 12. Let's read it again. It says, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. We see in these first couple verses, there's kind of two things going on. One is it speaks of these leaders, these leaders within the church, and there's sort of this charge, this call, it kind of unpacks a little bit of what leaders are called to do, but then it also speaks to the congregation, the body of the church, the believers within the church, and how they are to respond to the leaders. So let's talk first about what leaders are called to do, why leaders exist. You see, leaders are leaders within the church because of the work that they do. We've said this before, earlier in this letter, we looked at, there's a lot of leadership lessons around chapter two, beginning of chapter three, talked about what it means to be a leader, and we, we define leadership this way, leadership is influence. And so we're not talking about positional leadership or status type leadership, it's not a status, it's not a title thing. Leadership within the church is a role that someone is in and is called to do because of the work that is called to. Look at what it says there. It says, respect those who labor among you. And this is the first thing that leaders are called to do. There's kind of three things that leaders in the church do. The first is that they labor among you. 
And this is just a good reminder, if you are in leadership within the church body, it is a good reminder that ministry is hard work. It is a labor. You know, some of you perhaps have made this joke, I've been in ministry long enough to have heard this many times, like kind of the joke, like, hey, you guys only work like one day a week anyways, right? What do you do the rest of the week? (laughs) That's really funny, right? Because it's not true, it's so far from the truth. Ask my wife, ask my kids, it is far from the truth. In fact, um, taking one day off a week is what I have to struggle and strive for because the work of ministry is never done. There's always things to do. There's always people that are hurting. There's always more care, more work, more things that can be done. Somebody asked earlier, like, hey, how are you feeling about the sermon this week? You ready to go? I'm never ready to go. Like, I'm always thinking, always kind of working, preparing, thinking about the, the message until it's done. And it continues once I get home on Sunday afternoon. I'm like, oh, man, I wish I, wish I would have said it this way, or I wish I could have done this, or I wish I would have unpacked that better. It is a labor It is a work, and that is one of the things that leaders are called to, is to labor among you. He he, um, repeats this uh, sort of phrase in verse 13. It says, esteem them because of their work. It is hard work. And so I think this is just a good reminder that nobody gets into ministry, nobody pursues leadership in the church because of all the perks and the benefits and the days off. It's long, hard hours, and it is exhausting It's exhausting. The pastoral ministry is labor intensive. The teaching, the prayer, the time with people, it is labor. It's work. It's a fulfilling work. It's a valuable work. It's a needed work, but it is work. And he says, listen, leaders, you need to work among the church, right? The second thing that leaders are called to, you see right there, they are over you in the Lord. Now let's unpack this word over you. Uh, This word that's used there in this verse kind of carries two connotations, and I think both are helpful in understanding what leaders are called to. The first idea with that over you in the Lord is, is that leaders stand over in leadership within the church. It carries a sense of direction. It carries a sense of leading, guiding, sort of setting a course and moving toward it, there is leadership that is given, specific uh, leadership there. The other part of the connotation, though, of that word is not just kind of directing and guiding, but it's also care for. It shows a great concern for. There's an interest in those who they are leading. And I love the way that it's stated here. It says, over you in the Lord. Let's make no mistake that this happens. Any sort of leadership in the church happens in the Lord. The Lord, Jesus Christ, is the pastor, the senior pastor of our church, okay? He is the good shepherd. He is the great shepherd, and we, as leaders in the church, are only his under-shepherds and doing ministry in him and through him. And so it's directing, guiding, but also concern, interest, care for those that they are leading. This doesn't just happen without intentional labor, intentional work. And then the third thing that leaders are called to is the really fun part, They admonish you, admonish you. This word admonish, it means correction. Correction is given by word or by deed. What's implied there in using this word admonish is that people in the church are going the wrong way. They're doing things they shouldn't. They're hurting themselves. They're choosing poorly. And the leader is called to correct and to help point back to the right way. 
the way that Jesus calls us to, the way that God has laid out because it's good for those that the leader is leading. And this correction comes both in doctrinal errors at times that there is false or, or misguided doctrine, a misapplication of God's word, a misunderstanding of scripture. And so the leader is called to study rightly and divide rightly the word of God and, and direct in that way. But the leader's also called in these moral issues, these things that God has laid out in his word. He says, hey, you should do this. You should not do that. And we've said before, anytime God's saying don't, he's really saying don't hurt yourself. And so at times there's correction that's needed for the people of the church from the leaders. Hebrews 13, 17 says it this way, just a little differently. It says this, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those that will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. I'll tell you this, as a pastor, as a leader uh, in ministry here at this church right now, no verse I think weighs more heavily on my heart than this phrase right here that you have to keep watch over the souls as those that will have to give an account. Let's just make very clear that ministry, ministry, leadership in ministry is a weighty, weighty thing. I feel this burden all leaders should, that I have to give an account for the souls of those that I'm seeking to lead. And I have to answer before God, how did I do in leading in that? But the people, the church body, the congregation is called to respond. It says, hey, let them do it with joy and not with groaning, right? It is of no advantage to you if you make it difficult for the leaders that are trying to lead you. It is of no value to the church to have a leader that's not willing to admonish and it is of no value to you to be uh, in a church where you're unwilling to listen to the admonishment of the leadership. And so this is what leaders are called to. Notice one of the things about this leadership is that he doesn't use specific language in what leaders he's referring to. So I would say this, certainly the leaders that he's referring to are within the local church. And so it would definitely include those that are in the shepherding role of pastors or elders, right? Um, here at our church, there's myself and Pastor Scott are serving as uh, kind of pastors that, that are in this um, vocational position of ministry here. And then we have lay elders that are serving in leading and directing and guiding our church. And those were Brett Schillingstead and Eric Funky. And then we have a whole host of other leaders. We have Ariel Poffenbaugh who oversees our kids ministry. And we have small group leaders and ministry team leaders and other leaders that are leading in significant ways within our church. All of us as leaders are called to do these things, to labor, to be over and, and, and direct in the Lord and to admonish when it is needed. But here's the thing that Paul's really getting at here is how the church is to responding to. So this is what leaders do. This is what the church's now response is. There's two things. Do you see it there? It says, we ask you brothers, which is also kind of, you know, a friendlier, sort of softer way of asking. In other parts of the letter, he's urged, he's exhorted. This place he's asking. We ask you brothers, to do what? To respect those who labor among you, right? And the second thing, to esteem them very highly in love. Now, I understand sort of the uh, position that I'm in. You're like, man, this is a great passage to come to, right? Sort of self-serving. You just told us that you're the leader here, and now you're telling us how we need to respond to you. And what I would say is, without shame, I think, yes, because I believe that the church is a place that God has so clearly and specifically guided that it's a healthy relationship if we are interacting in this way. 
And so let's make sure we understand what's being said in these two words, this respect and esteem. This respect, is it carries the connotation of honoring, but more than that, it's this recognition, this recognition of the role that the leader, the pastor, the small group leader, the elder has been called to. And you recognize, hey, you have been placed there, God has called you there, and that is a place that you are serving. And so there's a respect for that not just because of the position, but because of the work that the leader has been called to. The second thing, this esteem, is to hold in high regard, to think well of, to respond rightly, to respond in care and concern toward. And I would say this, that it is not promoting and and not sort of uh, giving this idea, which I think has become more and more prevalent Uh, in this celebrity culture that we live in. It's not to put the pastor or the leader on some pedestal where they are to be uh, sort of set above and kind of put apart from the rest of the church. I've, uh, you are welcome to call me Pastor Dave. I've never required that or expected that. Most of the time, I just kind of go by Dave. If you ask me, hey, what should I call you? I'll just say Dave. Some of you feel better calling me Pastor Dave. That's fine, I'll still answer to that. But the reason that I don't put a high value on that is because I'm not trying to like separate and try to put some sort of barrier or wall between that. But at the same time, we want to recognize that certain people in certain times and certain situations have been called to specific things, and so there is this respect and this esteem that we are called to. And so we want to value the leaders of our church rightly. Our church is healthy when this is happening. And my experience in ministry has been this, that people like leaders until they don't. Have you seen that? Like Peter, people like leaders, maybe think about some of the leaders, you really like a leader until you just don't. They do something, say the wrong thing, make a choice, whatever it might be. And let's be clear, right? Some of you have some major baggage in this area. Leaders sin, even leaders in the church, they sin, they go off the rails, and that's not good. That's one of the reasons that I would just urge you, that I would ask you, pray for us, pray for your leaders here at this church Leaders are people too. Leaders are prone to wander. Leaders make poor choices at times. So we're not talking about that. Okay, that happens. But what we are talking about is good, healthy leaders. When leaders are doing the work, the labor, they're, they're, they're leading rightly and they're admonishing correctly. When they're doing that, then there is a healthy response toward that, this respect and this esteem that is to be given. And I think there's a propensity in our heart to not respect, to not esteem, Esteem, and the church is healthy when godly leaders are doing the work of leading and when the congregation is valuing them rightly and submitting to their leadership. And I would just say this, because I know maybe this is a question that you're asking. If not, I hope you, <laughs> I hope you are. Um, you know, how are we doing here? Like, how do I feel? I, if I was to just speak personally, um, you know, I feel very esteemed and highly in love here at this church, okay? It is a joy to pastor here. And so what I said at the beginning is, right, these checkups, it's better to be able to prevent an illness rather than to treat one that is already on set. And so I would say that let's keep going in the right direction. I would say that many of you that have written notes over the years, that have encouraged with your words, that have taken time to be um, intentional in that way, that is so life-giving. 
it, it reminds me of this work that I've been called to when you validate and recognize the way that God is working and using here. And so let's be clear, I'm not up here fishing for that, okay? I'm not trying to sort of make some desperate plea that, hey, I need to get some more you know, note cards this week, though you know, no one's ever turned down a little card or a little word of encouragement. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that we want to do this. And so would you do that? Would you do that with not just your pastors, not just your elders, but your small group leaders, your ministry team leaders? Would you support and encourage them? Would you respect them? Would you esteem them highly in love? Would you listen to them as they lead? Would you give them the benefit of the doubt? Would you listen to where they're trying to take us? Would you participate in the ministry? I said it before, and I'm gonna say it again. Man, a couple weeks ago, when we laid out the opportunity we had with St. Vincent, and everybody responded with such uh, participation in that, It's so encouraging as a leader to be able to guide and say, hey, I think this is where God's taking us and then for the church to get on board and to do that together. That is part of that respecting and esteeming in high regard the leaders that have been called to ministry. And so here's the first mark of a healthy church, right? When we value leaders rightly. Let me give you the second one and then I'll show it to you in scripture. A church is healthy when we minister to others diligently. We minister to others diligently. Paul kind of tacks on there at the end of verse 13. He says, be at peace among yourselves. I'm not sure if this is best linked to the where we're coming from or where we're going, but I think this is what we're called to do, right? Is we're interacting with our leaders and respecting them and, and in that place, but then also doing that together with the church body. There is this peace that we are called to have. And part of that is this ministry to one another. Verse 14 says this, we urge you brothers And sisters, right? That's the language here. We urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. The church is healthy when we minister to others diligently. Let's be clear about something, church. I think one thing that's gonna be super helpful in us understanding this point is this, is that the church has never been the place where the leaders are the ones in the game and everyone else is on the sidelines watching them do it. In fact, the exact opposite is true. It's, it's oftentimes that the, the, the church body is the ones in the game, and if anything, if we're gonna kind of play this illustration out, the leaders are on the sidelines sort of encouraging and directing and doing more of the coaching right? That's kind of the picture that we have. Yet, I think sometimes we slip into these places where we see that, hey, um, you know, that's the pastor's job, right? Or that's, we need to call the professional in for that one. I think I've, I've certainly felt that. I've even had someone say, hey, don't we pay someone to do that? Like, isn't that the work that like they're paid to do? Uh, can't we hire somebody to do that? That's not what we see at all. In a healthy church, everyone is in the game. Everyone has a position on the team and everyone has a role to play. And so I would just say this, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are called by God to do the work of ministry. Every one of you. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to do the work of ministry. Nobody sits this one out. In fact, the leader's job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 is super specific about that. It says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. For what? Why did he give these leaders to the church? Well, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. So leaders are called to equip the saints so that the saints can then go do the work of ministry. 
And so it would be wrong for me to spend all of my days, all of my time doing the work of ministry and never being about the work of equipping for ministry. And that's one of the greatest challenges within the church is because it's so easy for there to be ministry to do, but that's not what, we're not leading rightly if that's what we're doing. But it takes the people, the body of the church working and serving in the work of ministry. The congregation is called to do that work. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18 says it this way, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And so you have been called toward this ministry. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. 1 Peter 2.9 refers to this as the priesthood of all believers, right? We don't believe that there are different classes of Christian, this first class, second class, third class Christian. And if you're just kind of on the sidelines that you just get to watch, no, no, no. Everybody is called to ministry. And so when we come to this passage, when we see this, be at peace among yourselves. We urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. This is what we are all called to do. Every one of you is called to do this. And what I love about this verse is that this passage, it gives us some really helpful instruction on how to practically minister to one another. I would say that, that few passages, few verses has been as helpful to me personally as this one in knowing how to minister to different people in different situations, right? Some of us are wired certain ways. We kind of see situations certain ways. Um, if you're self-aware, then you probably know this, right? Some of you, um, you're kind of like a hammer. And if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? And so you just, you, you know that if there's something, there's a problem to be fixed, you just gotta nail it down. You just gotta hammer it. But people are not like that. If you are a hammer, you'll find very quickly that not everything is a nail. Not everything needs to be hammered. Not everything needs to be driven down. Situations are different. People are different. Ministry needs are different. And it takes discernment and intentionality to minister well. And so if you've ever said to yourself, man, I don't know how I'm supposed to help this person, what I'm about to show you here in verse 14 will be of tremendous help to you. I can't take credit for it. I think I got this originally from Garrett Higby uh, several years ago. But um, when he gave it to me, I, I, um, I actually wrote this. Uh, I have a chart for you. Those of you who love charts, woohoo, right? You get to write a chart down. I have this chart actually right in my Bible. And so if you wanna do that or uh, when it's all done, if you wanna take a picture, those of you that are online, we'll kind of throw it up at the end and you'll be able to take a screenshot or something, whatever you want. And if you miss it, let me know, I'll, I'll email it to you. But verse 14 gives us a really helpful tool to use in ministering to each other. Um, the first is, let me just kind of throw up here, I think these are the categories that we see here in this verse, okay? So the categories are, he talks about three different groups of people and he identifies them by their behavior. That behavior is flowing from a source, it's presenting itself as an issue and then it's calling the church to respond, okay? And so this is um, how it's presented here. And so the three behaviors, right, the three groups of people that are presented here are this, the weak, the faint-hearted, and the idle. Do you see it there? We urge you brothers, admonish the idle, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. I think it's helpful to understand where this behavior is coming from. There's a different source for each of these behaviors. The first is um, the weak, that is, an, uh, the source of that is their mind. 
Okay, in their mind, there is a weakness there, and there's some thoughts, there's some thinking, some patterns of, of thought that are not super helpful or are heading in the wrong direction. And so the source is the mind. For the faint-hearted, we're talking now not so much about thoughts, but we're talking about the emotions, the way that they feel. And so they are faint-hearted in the way that they feel. And the idol, well, that's dealing with the will. Now, the issue of what's really going on, so it refers to them as weak, but what's the issue with the weak? Well, the, the issue of their mind is that they're ignorant. Another way of saying that is they don't know, okay? There's some things that they don't know some thoughts that they don't know to think, some patterns that they don't, they aren't, they've never been shown. And so they're weak in this way. It's ignorance. The faint-hearted, what we're talking about here is we talk about the feelings. Well, it's a feeling of discouragement. It's defeat. It's despair. And you have probably felt that at some point. I think every person probably has. At some point in your emotions, you've felt discouraged and then that third category for the idol, well, the source is the will, but the issue is rebellious. It's a willful choosing to do the wrong thing. It's not that they don't know, it's not that they can't or, or are discouraged, but they know what they're supposed to do and they're choosing not to do it. I think this is super helpful even in parenting. Those of you that are parents, I've said it before, but we, uh, Bree and I often ask ourselves, is this foolishness or is it rebelliousness? Because kids are foolish, they choose to do really foolish things, okay? My son, all the time, he just chooses to do, like he jumps off things and eats things and picks up things. I mean, the other day, like, well, I guess it wasn't the other day because it was a little while ago. I was looking out the window and he was in the yard and he was picking up like brown snow and just eating it. It was like covered, it was so gross. It was when all the snow was melting and he's just like out there eating. I'm like, that's just foolishness, right? Like, he doesn't know. He's just like, oh, wow, like, Brown snow, let me try that. And it didn't seem to phase him because he just kept kind of going for it, okay? That's foolishness. Rebelliousness is totally different. It's that he knows what he's not supposed to do and chooses it anyways. Like I know I'm not supposed to take my sister's drink and pour it out on the table because I just told, my dad just told me I'm not supposed to do that, right? And chooses it anyway. So rebellious is different. But here's the response that we're called to do as the church. Those that are weak, in their mind, acting out of ignorance, we need to help them. So sometimes there's something that needs to be taught. Sometimes there's something that needs to be modeled. Sometimes there is an example that needs to be given, whatever it might be, that there is help that is needed. Hey, what is the barrier towards this and how can I help you do it? It's weakness. To those that are faint-hearted, he says it right there. He says, encourage the faint-hearted. That's what we're called to do with the faint-hearted. Encourage. And so, hey, you can do this through Christ. You can do this. You put courage into, that's what encourage means. And so you strengthen, you exhort, you equip, you encourage in a variety of ways through God's word, through his spirit. You bring life, you pour encouragement into the situation. And those that are idle, well, you get to admonish them. Nobody loves to admonish others, right? That correction that we're talking about. Here's the best part, is it's not just the leaders that get to admonish, you get to admonish too. Yeah, it's the super fun part of ministry, right? To correct, and we're always looking, I, I don't know about you, I wake up, I'm like, I can't wait to correct somebody, tell them that what they're doing isn't right, or that they're doing something that's not, like, no, nobody looks forward to that, but, but this is what we are called to do as brothers and sisters in the family of God together. 
If you ever, I would really encourage you to do this, read the book of Proverbs and try and do it in like one sitting. You can do it in a couple hours. It really doesn't take that long. But one of the cool things in doing that is look for certain themes. Read it with this lens, kind of read through the book of Proverbs and look for every time it talks about uh, admonishment, uh, correction, discipline. What you're gonna see is this, is that every time it's always framed in the positive light. Like it's always good, it's always healthy, it's always needed, it's always to be welcomed, it's always to be thankful for, right? But what do we do? Well, we avoid giving admonishment and we certainly don't want to receive it. Yet, what does God's word say? It says, those that are idle, admonish them. We need to correct. And so we do this with care, we do this with intentionality, And so maybe already this is helping you. You're thinking about that person that you've been trying to care for, that you've been trying to encourage, that you've been trying to minister to. I would just ask this. Are they weak? Are they faint-hearted? Or are they idle? Because there's a different response, a different ministry that is required depending on the situation. And then Paul goes on to give some summary thoughts that are helpful in every situation. See there, the last part of verse 14, it says this. Oh yeah, those of you that are online, check that out. There's the the full chart. You can see it there. Thanks, Jeremy, for throwing that up. Take a screenshot or something of that. But it goes on there at the uh, end of verse 14 to kind of give a summary statement. It says what? Be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. And listen, if we're gonna seek to minister to each other diligently, we're not looking for these quick fixes. It's not just gonna happen. It's not instantaneous change. Rather, what we're gonna see is that it's going to take time. And sometimes it's one step forward, two steps backwards, two steps forwards, one step back. It's a process and it takes time. What are we called to do though? We're called to endure with each other, to model what the Lord has done to us. God is so patient with us. He's so steadfast, he's so faithful. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. And so we are called to do the same with one another. We are to be patient. And so yes, we call towards change. Yes, we help. Yes, we encourage. Yes, we admonish. But in all of that, we're patient. We're patient for God to do the work. We know that it doesn't rely on us and our wit and our candor and everything that we're doing. Praise the Lord, right? We are just his tools, his instruments in that. But we are called to be patient. Everyone would say, right, you want people to be patient with you? How many times you're like, oh, they just don't get my situation, right? We want people to be patient with us, but we should be patient with others in the same way. He goes on and he says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. This is how the world does it, right? She says that about me, I'm gonna say this about her. He does this to me, well, I'm gonna do this back. There is this sort of tit for tat, this exchange, this this kind of, well, if they do that, then I'm gonna respond this way or I'm gonna do this. This is how the world does it, not so the followers of Christ. This is not the way of Jesus. This isn't the kingdom of God. He calls us to something different. We don't repay evil for evil. Rather, we are called to forgive each other in love. This is how the people of God do it. And so we, for sure, it's not, if we're going to wrong each other, but when we make sure that we do not repay evil for evil, but instead what? Seek always to do good to one another and to everyone. I love the way this is phrased, to one another. It starts here in the church. We are doing good for one another. We're looking for opportunities, looking, be on the lookout. Where can I be good? Where can I show good? Where can I help? Where can I can encourage? Where can I do these things? But it doesn't just stay in the church, it begins here, but then it overflows to everyone around us. 
And so I would say this is that if you've got every relationship as an opportunity to do good, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, your family, the people that you encounter and meet throughout your week, you have the opportunity to do good. Well, we seek always to do good to one another and to everyone that we would encounter. You know, one of the things that I think is so worth pointing out before we move on from this is that there is in the New Testament, certainly in Paul's writings, no category for the Christian, the follower of Jesus that is disconnected from the community of God's people. As Paul is writing here and he's saying these things, notice that this does not happen apart from community. And so I think it's just assumed in the New Testament that if you are following Jesus, that we are doing it together and we're with one another's. And I would just continually set this before our church and I would just say this, is that if this is only a Sunday morning thing, like an only time that you're interacting with the church is here in the worship service, that's great, right? Some amazing things happen here. God works here in this place. His spirit is, is here. This is great. We need this, but there is so much more than that. We are not just called to be this group of believers that just gathers for worship, but rather we are to engage in community together. I think this is best done in the context in our church. It looks like small groups where we interact with, we get to know each other, and it's part of the local church. But I believe this, that Jesus did not just come to die and give his life so that you would come to a worship service once a week. In fact, he redeemed us to make us into a new people, into a people of God, his family, interacting and doing these things together. We cannot do the one another's on our own. We need each other and so the church, a healthy church, it ministers to each other diligently. Let's do this. Let's get after it. And here's the third thing is this, is that we worship God continually. We worship God continually. Sort of three expressions of this worship toward God we see here in verses 16, 17, and 18. It says this, the first way that we express our worship to God is that we rejoice always. We rejoice always. If you love lists, this is a good day for lists, right? The first way, we rejoice always. Followers of Jesus are called to a life of joy. And let's just be clear that that is different from happiness. Happiness and joy are not the same thing. Happiness is fleeting. It speaks more to our emotional state. Joy is so much deeper than that. It's foundational. It's enduring. My favorite definition of joy is this. It's a supernatural delight in the person of God, the purposes of God, and the people of God. I'll say it again if you want to write that down. The definition of joy is this, supernatural. That means it's from God. God is the one who creates it, who does it, who sustains it. A supernatural delight in the person of God, the purposes of God, and the people of God. And what I love about that definition is those things are not fleeting. They're not changing. They are enduring we have seen and we know the person of God. We have been clearly given the purposes of God and we have been called to interact with the people of God as messed up and broken as we are. We delight in these relationships together and it's a supernatural delight. This is the joy that the follower of Jesus has been called to. So it says there, it doesn't say just joy, it says rejoice. Rejoice is the action of joy. All right, it's what you do with the joy. It's when you put feet to your joy. It's when you put word to your joy. We give voice to our joy through our rejoicing. So how do we rejoice? Well, we do it through a variety of ways. We do it through song. We do it through prayer. We do it through our thoughts. We do it in our expression to God, to others. We give thought, we give words, we give action to our joy. And so it says rejoice always, 
right? Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. The believer is to rejoice always. This is how we worship God. We take supernatural delight in him, his purpose, and his people. The second way that we worship God continually is we pray constantly. He says, pray without ceasing. Prayer, simply put, is talking and listening to God. It's a conversation with the maker of heaven and earth. And listen, church, we need to grow in our desperation for prayer. Are you desperate for prayer? Like, do you have a desperation for prayer in your life? John Piper, um, I read this quote uh, earlier in the week, or maybe a couple weeks ago, but it just kind of hit me, and I thought it was so accurate. It's, he, he said this, he says, prayer has become more of a room service intercom than a wartime walkie-talkie. Prayer has become more of a room service intercom rather than a wartime walkie-talkie. And isn't that such an accurate picture, right? I think sometimes you just sort of, you know, buzz God and say, hey, when you're able, when you get around to it, there's a couple things I'd love for you to kind of, you know, attend to if you can, rather than a wartime walkie-talkie where we are desperately crying out to God and saying, God, we need you here, right? If you don't show up, we are in rough shape. God, would you work? Would you provide? Would you come down? Would you be present in this situation? We need to view prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie. It's our only line of defense. And I wonder if we believe the words that Jesus spoke when he said this. He said, apart from me, you can do what? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Do we believe those words? I think if we're honest, myself included, our lack of prayer shows that we don't always believe that. We think that we can do it without him. We can do it on our own. Our prayer shows that we believe those words, that we can do nothing apart from him. We are fully dependent on him. I would love for us to get to the place that prayer is essential for our ministry. We say it all the time, like we believe firmly in the power of prayer, but this is something that we have to constantly be chasing after and pulling back onto the table, right? It's always crawling off. Charles Bridges says this, prayer is one half of our ministry and it gives the other half all of its power and success. Would this be how we view prayer in this church? I said it earlier, but we have these prayer mornings that are coming up, right? We're starting this week with the National Day of Prayer but every Thursday this month, we are gonna be joining together in prayer from seven to 8 a.m. I would just ask again, can you make it to at least one of those? I don't wanna, I'm not trying to like guilt you or kind of put any sort of extra pressure, but I also want to like put an appropriate amount of pressure and say, listen, we need this church. We need to do this. And so can you clear that time? Can you make a, a change? Can one time, can you gather together? The question was asked, what about those that absolutely can't? I would say this, we would love for you to be here in person. And so whatever we can do to make that happen, if we need to step outside and pray together, if we need to do that, we're gonna do that however we can. If you absolutely can't make it here in person, let me know, contact me, and we will do an online gathering. But I think it's important for us to be in this place, in this place together, and doing this together. Right? If we knew that if we didn't gather, that we knew that the church was going to fail, we would find a way to do it. I think we need to view prayer more in this light. I don't want to be overly dramatic on this point, but he says, pray without ceasing. Not that we're always in our prayer closet, that we're always like only praying, but that there's this attitude, this continual prayer where we're constantly desperate, seeking after God, asking him to do these things. Whenever we talk about prayer, I actually get pretty excited because 
I can point to many, many times in the life of our church, we have gathered for prayer specifically, like one of the very first prayer gatherings we ever had. It was like a week later that we got the opportunity to purchase this building. Earlier in this year, we gathered for prayer in January. One of the specific prayers that we were praying that night, if those of you that were there remember this, we were praying that God would give us opportunity here in this community to do ministry. You know what happened three days later? I got an email about these food box giveaways and God provided a way for us to be able to do these things. I mean, I'm telling you, God has answered prayer specifically, so much so that it's like, why are we not doing this even more often? And so I can't wait to see what's gonna happen in June after the church gathers together in May and asking God to work here in the life of our church. Let's pray constantly. This is how we worship. And the third way that we worship God continually is we give thanks in everything. God's people are to be the most thankful because we have so much to be thankful for. Notice the qualifier there. It says, give thanks in what? In all circumstances. It doesn't say for all circumstances, rather in all circumstances. Let's be honest. We walk through many, many things that are not great. What the church in St. Vincent is facing is not great right now, but God is calling us to be thankful even in the midst of the trial. He's calling them to be thankful even in the midst of the trial. What can they be thankful for? Well, they can be thankful for God's presence. They can be thankful for other partners that are with them in that. They can be thankful for the way that God's going to use that trial to shape and to transform them. And they can be thankful for the future hope and knowing that this is not the all that God has for us, but there is a life yet to come. Listen, we have much, much, much to be thankful for. This is is, it says right here, the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so the church is healthy when we respond in worship together. Here's how we wanna do that practically right now is we wanna worship God through communion. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come and as they do, let's prepare our hearts to be reminded of what God has done on our behalf through his son, Jesus Christ on the cross. As we celebrate and remember Christ's death, his work through communion. We rejoice, right? He's called us to rejoice. We rejoice in the work that Christ has accomplished on the cross. As we take communion together, we give thanks for the redemption that we find in Christ Jesus. And as we take communion together, we pray that he will continue that work which he has begun in us, knowing that he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you for your grace and for your goodness that you have extended to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we worship you. We give you praise. God, we lift high your name. We give thanks for all the ways that you have worked. God, continually we come before you in prayer and we ask that you would continue this work which you have begun. God, we rejoice that there is a future, there is a hope. The victory is certain, it has already been won and so God, we rejoice in that. God, we celebrate what you have already accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. God, would you continue to grow us, build us up into the healthy church, God, that you have called us to be. We know we cannot do it on our own. We need you, God. And so we ask this in desperation, God, would you do this work? We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen.